This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. A divided Supreme Court has made it easier to send its minors convicted of murder to life in prison without parole. In a 6-3 decision that split the justices along ideological lines, the court said a judge does not have to find a minor to be permanently incorrigible or incapable of being rehabilitated before imposing a sentence of life without parole. The ruling follows more than a decade where the court had moved toward more leniency for minors convicted of murder, treating them differently from adults. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Jordan Rubin. Jordan, tell us about the defendant in this case. So Brett Jones was convicted of murder for a crime that he committed when he was 15 years old. He fatally stabbed his grandfather during an argument at home, and he was initially sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And his case called into question this line of Supreme Court precedents going back years, and the court wound up holding in a previous decision that mandatory life without parole sentences for juveniles are unconstitutional. And so that raised further appeals in Jones's case where the Supreme Court had to sort out what exactly is required of judges when they're handing down these life without parole sentences to juveniles in these discretionary schemes. Did a judge review his sentence after he was in prison? That's right. The judge did do that. However, the judge did not make a finding that Jones was, quote, permanently incorrigible, end quote, which is some language that had been in some of these prior Supreme Court decisions. And he argued that that's required before a judge makes a finding that a person who was a minor when they committed the crime can be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. So what did the Supreme Court rule? The Supreme Court said that that is actually not required by those precedents and that All these prior precedents require is that a statutory scheme is that a state scheme be discretionary. And so, so long as it's not a mandatory scheme, then that is enough under the Constitution. And so this was a six to three split. Tell us about the split. Right. This one split right along party lines. It was a decision written by Justice Kavanaugh, and he was joined by the other five Republican appointees, and the three remaining Democratic appointees were in dissent. And that's not super unusual in these types of cases under the Eighth Amendment. We've seen these types of divides before in these cases, and so this is continuing that pattern. So Justice Sotomayor wrote the dissent, and she said that the majority opinion guts precedent. Explain what she meant. So Justice Sotomayor looked back at those precedents and said that in order for the majority to make this ruling, that a permanent incorrigibility finding is not required, that a factual finding is not required, in order to reach that result, the majority really had to contort precedent to a point where, in her words, they were gutting precedent without admitting it and rewriting those prior precedents in the process without admitting it. That was the dissent's view. The court in the past has treated juveniles more leniently in violent crimes because of their lack of maturity. Tell us about that history. So there's been a series of decisions where one decision after the other, the court in a progression really kept handing down rulings that were more and more favorable to people who committed crimes when they were minors, although that was back when Justice Kennedy was still on the court before he retired and was replaced by Justice Kavanaugh. And so 
this case really marked a halt to that progression is one way to look at it. And it's obvious why that happened. It's because of the change in personnel on the court since those prior rulings were handed down. Explain how this case highlights the divide on the court when it comes to the Eighth Amendment and cruel and unusual punishment cases. So I think what we've seen in a lot of these Eighth Amendment cases, which is the backdrop for this cruel and unusual punishment, that's what the Eighth Amendment prohibits. However, there are pretty stark disagreements over what exactly that means. The same sort of divide that we've seen in death penalty cases, which are also Eighth Amendment cases, issues that are implicated there. And so we see that same divide. And so this case is an example of really what the Republican appointees have seen as required under the Eighth Amendment, as opposed to what the Democratic appointees have seen as required. And so this case is really a perfect reflection of that split. I was surprised. The United States is the only country that allows juveniles to be given life without parole? That's right. We're an outlier in the world. Again, similar to the death penalty, where we're not the only one, but certainly in the minority of countries, certainly in so-called developed nations that have it. And so this is another criminal justice aspect of our country where we're an outlier compared to the rest of the world, certainly the so-called developed world. And what about the states? Where do the states stand on this issue? Right. So that's a very good question, June. I'm glad you asked, because as in a lot of criminal justice spaces, we're seeing more attention being put on the states, especially where reformers are not seeing success at the Supreme Court. And so they've been making strides there in their view in order to either curtail or ban the use of, for example, life without parole for juvenile offenders. And so as it stands now, more than half the states either ban the practice or don't have anyone serving these types of sentences. And that's really where reformers are focusing their energy now is on the states. Jordan, the court often takes cases when there's a split in the circuits. Was there a split in the circuits here? So they definitely took it in order to try and explain really these prior precedents because it was not clear what exactly they meant in terms of what exactly was required, as Jones's case showed. So at the very least, it was an incredibly important issue that the court felt the need to explain. And there really could be still more left to explain, although in this case, the court said judges don't need to make this certain finding. Perhaps we could see future cases falling somewhere in the middle between a judge saying nothing and a judge making this permanent incorrigibility finding. There could still be a lingering question of, what exactly do or do not judges have to do. So there's no rule right now, or does it depend on the states, as to what a judge has to find in order to put a juvenile in prison for life? So it is it is clear now under the Supreme Court's latest decision in Jones's case what's not required. A judge does not specifically have to say, I find this person to be permanently incorrigible. It's enough according to this latest decision, for there to have been discretion for the judge to have considered youth as a mitigating factor under those prior precedents. Uh, There just could potentially be another case delving further into perhaps there's an unclear situation of whether a judge made this consideration or not, because we have this pretty 
bright line rule from the Supreme Court now. So there could still be further challenges. But as I said, I really think the focus for people making these challenges is going to be more so putting their energy into the state level than necessarily hoping for success at the Supreme Court, at least as it's constructed now. I was struck in your story, you spoke to John Neiman, who had argued for the state in the Miller case when he was Alabama's Solicitor General, and and he said, we're all capable of redemption. I thought that was interesting because he was on the other side of it. Right. And so I think ultimately he agreed with this decision in the Jones case. He was raising an interesting point where this permanent incorrigibility standard, and it wasn't taken out of thin air, it was taken from prior precedents, what Jones was arguing for. It raises interesting questions of what exactly is a judge doing when they're making this finding, because the point that Mr. Neiman was raising was, if you're a person who finds that no one is beyond redemption, then it would be impossible for a judge to make this finding against a defendant. And so that could be part of what was animating the majority's concern here in the Jones case, that if that's the rule, then it ties the judge's hands. In effect, they have to say, I believe this person is beyond redemption. And that's something that can cross different ideological and religious lines, what have you. And so it could be just a matter of the court saying we don't want judges to get into that specific type of business. So now as far as Jones is concerned, does he have any avenues left? Does he get to go back to the judge and say anything or is this the end of the road? So I think it is the end of the road. In Justice Kavanaugh's opinion at the end, he had an interesting paragraph where he noted in his view, in Justice Kavanaugh's view, that it's not necessarily the end of the road because there could be a state reform or Jones could ask for clemency. But that's true in every case, whether the Supreme Court makes that clear or not. And so I don't know of any particular reason why Jones would be successful on that front. It's possible. But the point is, if nothing else happens in his case, there's no reason to think that he will not be dying in prison. Has the Supreme Court taken up any other juvenile justice cases recently? Not very recently, no. Before this case, there was the same issue being raised in the case of one of the D.C. snipers, one of the two there, but that case wound up settling after a change in state law. And so this case, Brett Jones's case, wound up being a replacement for that. But we don't have anything on the horizon now. As I said, I think we're going to be looking to the states for upcoming action there. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Jordan. That's Bloomberg Law reporter Jordan Rubin. With the nation reeling from a series of mass shootings, the Supreme Court has decided to hear a major new Second Amendment case involving the right to carry a handgun in public for self-defense. Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Explain what gun rights are at issue in this case. June, the Supreme Court has never said whether the Second Amendment applies outside the home. And in this case, that's really the core issue. New York and about seven other states sharply restrict who can get a license to carry a a weapon, a handgun, in public. New York requires people to show some special need beyond that of the average member of of the public. And gun rights groups have been trying for years to get the Supreme Court to take up this issue and say that the Second Amendment does apply outside the home and gives people a right to carry handguns with them in public for self-defense purposes, and that's what the court's going to consider the next term. 
In June, the Supreme Court refused to take up challenges to the New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Maryland laws, which are similar to New York's. So is the difference here the fact that Justice Amy Coney Barrett is now on the court? It would seem that way, certainly from the outside. Of course, we don't know who vote, which justices voted to take up a case and which justices didn't. And this is a case where lower courts for quite a number of years have disagreed. So a number of people, myself included, kind of expected the court to take up this issue a long time ago. That said, the one thing that does seem to be uh, clearly different from the outside is that you do have another conservative justice. Justice Ginsburg, of course, was a dissenter from the court's previous gun rights decisions. Based on what we know about Justice Barrett, there's a good chance she'll be on the side of gun rights. So it's not a big jump to say that she probably made the difference here. Has there been a split among federal appeals courts in handling this issue? There have been. Most federal appeals courts have said that the Constitution does not protect gun rights outside their home, or at least they've said that these laws that restrict the ability of people to get carry permits uh, are constitutional. Uh, There's one federal appeals court, I believe, that has gone the other way, so there is a split on the issue. It's been the, the issue that probably more than any other Uh, gun rights advocates have asked the Supreme Court to take up and uh, to really expand the Second Amendment. In its last two gun rights decisions in 2008 and 2010, the court did expand gun rights. So is it likely that the court is taking up this case in order to reverse New York's restrictions and expand gun rights again? That would seem the most likely, especially given the makeup of the court. Now, that being said, there has been something holding the court back over these last few years. There's been some reporting that Chief Justice Roberts is one justice who is reluctant to expand the Second Amendment in this sort of way. That said, the conservatives don't need him in the majority anymore if the three Trump-appointed justices, Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch, all agree that these people in this case do have a right to get a concealed carry permit then John Roberts' vote uh, won't be necessary. Do we know where those three justices stand on gun rights? Have any of them dealt with gun rights issues when they were on circuit courts? Well, we know, first of all, that Kavanaugh and Gorsuch have both expressed a desire for the court to take more Second Amendment cases, including this very issue. So they have given us some indication that they are eager to get involved, at least in this particular issue. Justice Barrett, as a lower court judge, didn't consider this precise issue, but she has handled some other Second Amendment issues, including a case involving whether a nonviolent felon could be banned for life from having a handgun. And she has indicated she is going to be an advocate of Second Amendment rights. So certainly New York has an uphill fight with this particular court. This is going to put the justices in the middle of one of the country's most divisive issues during a national crisis in firearm violence. And we've talked before about how the court has been sort of reluctant to get into these kinds of divisive issues at this point. So does this look like a turning point for the court? It might be. And of course, it could also be a one-off of they felt like they just had to take up this particular issue. But yes, something has been holding the court back. Uh, The court did, it's somewhat interestingly to me, wait for several weeks to to decide to take this case up. It was relisted at their private conference four straight times, So, and then they kind of modified the exact question of 
about what exactly they're going to decide. So there may have been some hesitation from within the court about exactly how they wanted to jump in here. But certainly, given the, uh, I think not an exaggeration to say dozens of cases over the years from gun rights advocates that the court has refused to take up, this does seem like a, a turning point moment. So what they're going to decide is whether a state has to issue carry permits. That's right. To, to typical people, people who don't show some special need that sets them apart. So New York uh, does issue a very limited number of carry permits to people who can show there is something about their particular situ- situation beyond just, um, I live in a dangerous neighborhood and I, I want to protect myself. So it won't mean that every single person can get a carry permit. States, uh, no doubt, will still be able to exclude, for example, convicted violent felons from from getting a handgun license. Uh, And those people are actually barred under federal law. But it would mean the average person, or potentially could mean the average person, would be able to get a license to carry a handgun. Thanks, Greg. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. A Supreme Court case pits inventors against their former employers. The Supreme Court is considering how to balance the rights of companies to protect patent rights created with their resources against the ability of inventors to move freely between employers. The court is reviewing a U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit decision that the inventor of a surgical device and his current company, Minerva Surgical, can't argue two patents on the device are invalid to defeat infringement claims by his former employer, Hologic, which now owns the rights to the inventions. Joining me is Joseph Ray, a partner at Kenobi Martin and president of the American Intellectual Property Law Association, which submitted an amicus brief in the case. So start by explaining the facts here, what the issue is. Well, the facts here involve the application of an ancient uh, patent law doctrine called Asinor Estoppel. And this is when somebody cannot challenge the validity of a patent that they previously sold for value. So in this case, the inventor sold the patent to a subsequent company and then later began competing with that company. And then the inventor was sued, his company was sued for patent infringement. And the appellate court said that the inventor could not challenge the validity of the patent that he had previously sold. This falls in all the other estoppels we have in the law. And you, you're familiar with lots of estoppels. We have judicial estoppel. We have collateral estoppel. We have equitable estoppel. Here we're dealing with Asinor estoppel. And Asinor estoppel should be less of a legal ground and more of an equitable one. And that's what we're fighting over. The appellate court treated it as a legal estoppel. And really, I think the court thinks it should be treated more equitably like equitable estoppel. And that is, let's actually look to what the representation was, to what extent was their reliance, and treat it more like a traditional estoppel rather than a rigid legal estoppel. Tell us a little bit more about the facts here. The employee sells the patent or gives the rights to the patents to his employer, then he leaves the company and he challenges that patent, or is it more more discreet than that? Well, that's, that's close enough. Uh, what happened was there were some transfers to subsequent companies. So the company was sold, and he was the founder of the original company, and he was paid, and he, re- he did receive some money for the sale of the company as a shareholder. And then there were successor companies, 
And so this rule applies to anybody in privity. So he obviously was in privity with the sale of the patent initially. And so he was precluded by the appellate court, the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit in Washington, D.C. They held that the equities really didn't matter, that since he was the seller of the patent initially or the patent application, he is precluded no matter what happens in subsequent prosecution of the patent application. I think, I think the, the Supreme Court will think the appellate court was way too rigid in its application of the rule. They should have considered how the invention changed over time. So remember, in patents, sometimes the prosecution takes 10, 15 years before the patent office. And so I could sell you a disclosure on an automobile, but the ultimate claim that issues from the patent office may happen 10, 15 years later, and the claim may be much broader than simply the disclosure in the patent application. So if I sell you an application to a car, you could effectively prosecute it to have it cover any transport mechanism, something much broader than a car. And so that's what makes this different than real property where the boundaries are set. Those are the facts. So now during the Supreme Court oral arguments, what were some of the main concerns that justices were expressing in their questioning? Well, there were many, and this case could be decided on many, many grounds. First of all, is it settled doctrine? That's the first question. And there's much debate about whether or not this doctrine still survived much torturous case law. The second question is, is this a job for Congress? Should this be left alone? Did Congress ever adopt or sanction such a doctrine? And so the justices were not sure whose role it would be to cabin this doctrine in. The third thing is also, should the doctrine be curtailed? That was the main focus of the argument. It appears the doctrine will survive, but in a very modified, scaled-down version. Did some of the justices express an opinion that, you know, why disturb this doctrine? It's been in place for so long. Yes. The best example of that would be uh, Justice Kavanaugh. He specifically asked the petitioner, why should we upset a doctrine that has been around for so long? That's exactly what his point was. So where do you think the court is going to come out? I do think the court will preserve the doctrine, but scale it back. Let the courts focus on some of the key equitable facts to show that the doctrine makes sense. The doctrine may not make sense under the facts of this case because the patent changed form. It did not claim the exact same invention that was transferred at the time of the initial assignment. And that's what makes intellectual property cases or patent cases so difficult. The, the legal rights change over time because there's continuing prosecution before the patent office, which changes the boundaries of the patent rights. So how would the Supreme Court then frame the ruling in order to reach some kind of middle ground? Is this going to be on a case-by-case basis? Well, case-by-case basis by actually looking exactly what was assigned. What did the astronaut actually believe he was transferring? That's the key fact, and that's the position the government has taken. The government did advance a middle ground, as did we at the AIPLA, that you should look to the facts and actually try to determine what did the astronaut believe 
he was transferring and warranting at the time of the assignment. What's the position of tech companies? Are they uh, afraid that this is going to you know, erode their rights and in intellectual properties? No, and it's, it's funny how you label tech companies. Tech companies fall all over the spectrum. Many of the large tech companies normally are defendants in patent cases. So <laughs> um, they are not as dependent on patents as smaller companies. So really we divide uh, the markets in, normally by the size of the company. Smaller companies tend to be more dependent on the patent system than larger tech companies. Does the Supreme Court take patent cases very often? Well, no, um, and it depends what window of time you're looking at. Uh, I do remember in the 90s uh, or in the 80s and 90s, they might take one or two a decade. Now they're taking three, four a year. Um, and so they're, the court is showing much more interest in patent cases because they recognize the importance of our patent system. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Joseph Ray, a partner at Kenobi Martin and president of the American Intellectual Property Law Association. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.